This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Marty Hayden is joining us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. I'm Bob Salter. It is the NFL preview that happens at 730 this morning. Marty is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation. Earth Justice on the web at earthjustice, that's all one word, dot O-R-G. Um, Marty, first of all, good morning. Welcome to our program. Good morning, Bob, and thanks. thank you very much for having me on. When you hear news from the Trump administration on um, the climate and on areas like climate change, is there is that news conflicting even within the administration these days? Well... The, the National Climate Assessment that came out on uh, the day after Thanksgiving mm-hmm. was the result of 13 agencies under the Trump administration that leveled the most dire warning we have heard on climate to date. Meanwhile, as you know, the president then, in reaction to that, says he doesn't believe it. Well, he can stick his head in the, sand, in the sand all he wants on climate change, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Why do you think there seems to be such a disconnect on his part with, you know, findings like what we heard from this effort? I think it could be either one of two things. Um, and the first is maybe more disturbing than the second, although they both are disturbing. Uh, the first is either the president really does believe climate change is a hoax, or the second is climate change gets in the way of what he and his administration are doing and want to do for King Coal and Big Oil. You know, when he says that, you know, he, he puts it sometimes very simply and will say, I don't believe it. Or, I mean, those simple words are yet very powerful. How do advocates for the environment, advocates for the idea that climate change is occurring, how do you really work around that? Well, I think there's, you know, the very core of President Trump base uh, believes everything he says. So I don't think that's, uh, you know, I, I think the rest of the country, I think, you know, what is probably 70 percent or maybe better of the country isn't denying climate change. In fact, we know from uh, polling that about 70 percent of the country believes climate change is real and it's something important that we we address. And, you know, we're about to have we're about to have some important help here. And that was uh, the results of the 2018 elections in the U.S. House. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a green wave that came into the House in 2018 and come january the sun is about to come out and there's nothing better than sunshine for exposing all that the trump administration is trying to do to pander to big oil and king coal 
and climate change is no longer going to be a, a hoax in the U.S. House. The, and the power that the House is going to have is we have climate champions taking over all of the relevant committees that oversee issues related to climate change in the House of Representatives. And they're going to be able to hold the administration accountable through real oversight, compelling the release of information. They can subpoena. In some cases, they can depose witnesses. And this is an administration that has been completely unaccustomed to having any kind of meaningful oversight on it by the Congress. That new House majority starting in January, realistically, what kind of priorities should we expect when it comes to the environment? Well, I think they're going to be a lot. First off, so I already mentioned the, about the, uh, the chairs taking over, how they're, we're, we're going from with folks who have lifetime environmental voting records in the 90s or taken out in the mid 90s, actually, are taking over these committees, replacing people on the Republican side had been chairs that are in the single digits. It's a huge change. On top of that, we have a probably the most impressive class of incoming new members I have seen in 30 years of doing this work. They are energized, they are committed, and, the, and for the most part, they are very green. And so there's a lot of energy in the House. So to get back to your question, I think we're going to see a lot of attention in a lot of areas across the board. I'll just flag a few. In the climate space, they're going to be digging into the national climate assessment. I guarantee it. I think the report we were just talking about, they're going to dig deep on the administration's efforts to undo the Clean Power Plan, which is the climate rule to reduce carbon pollution from power plants. They're going to go after it. They're going to dig into their efforts to undo the methane rules, which reduce that powerful greenhouse gas emission from oil and gas development. And then I'm sure, certain they will dig into the clean cars rule, which is something the Trump administration is trying to undo, that is to make our cars be less polluting uh, both now and in the future. Outside of the climate space, I guarantee you they will look at, into the clean water rule, which protects the drinking water for one in three Americans. The Trump administration is talking about undoing the mercury rule for power plants. That rule saves 11,000 lives each and every year right now, and nearly every power plant in the U.S. complies with it. Yet the Trump administration is looking at undoing it. Uh, just to name one last, well, a couple more. I think, I think they will get into the administration's decision not to go forward with a ban on chlorpyrifos, which is a dangerous pesticide that was a, that's a neurotoxin that was first developed by the Nazis in World War II, and it's sprayed on our fruits and vegetables today, and it threatens our children and farm workers. They will also look at what the president's been up to on national monuments, particularly the shrinking of the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase national monuments in Utah, as well as I'm confident they will dig in deep on the administration's plans for oil and gas leasing off of all of our coasts and in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So do you expect that there's going to wind up being oversight from that new House majority, or 
are we going to be seeing things that will basically wind up with it being gridlock? Well, I think oh, you can't gridlock oversight. And what I mean by that is they, they, they have ways of compelling the administration to produce the goods. So they can't, they can't exactly, they can't ignore them or else they face, they, they really create problems for themselves. So that's now in terms of gridlock with the hot, with the Senate and uh, with the Senate and the, in charge of, sorry, in terms of gridlock with the Senate run by uh, the Republicans. And then of course, with president Trump needed to sign uh, legislation for the most part, this is going to be a, be a time for building, you know, for building the political will to take meaningful action on climate. We'll be able to pass a lot of bills out of the House, but the Senate won't move much. However, there are bills that are important to both of those bodies and to the president. And I think one of the first ones of that type that'll be, you know, coming to the fore is the infrastructure bill. And within a big infrastructure bill, there is the opportunity to do a lot of climate smart uh, policies and investments. And I think things like promoting and supporting the electrification of transportation, whether that's buses, cars, freight, you know, freight terminals or ports, can happen, could happen in an infrastructure bill, making our electricity grids both more resilient and more aligned to help get more renewable energy to market can also be part of this. Helping communities build up their resiliency in the face of the impacts of climate change. The the climate assessment that just came out, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago now, or actually, I'm sorry, the climate assessment that just came out a little over a week ago, you know, pointed out we're already having the climate impact today. I mean, many of us knew this, but here is the, you know, nation's foremost scientist saying, yes, it's happening today. What we're seeing happening is because of climate. Our seas has, has risen seven to eight inches already, and half of that has been since 1993. And right now, 25 cities in the Atlantic and Gulf Coast are dealing with daily tidal flooding. This, these impacts are real. The, the, you know, the, the severe heavy rainfall, the, the intense frequent rainfall that we've seen here in the east this, this summer, that's related to climate. The report verifies that. So there are things we can do to help our communities, you know, prepare for those impacts and things, investments we can make in an infrastructure bill. And I think, I think that, that type of uh, legislation does have a chance. Marty Hayden is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation. He's our guest on our program and is uh, sharing some information with us. For those who don't know, how do you describe what Earth Justice is all about? Uh, well, Earth Justice's tagline is because the earth needs a good lawyer. And as an organization, we're a nonprofit, we're the nation's largest nonprofit environmental law firm. We provide free legal representation to every everyone from grassroots environmental groups to national 
every national environmental organization you can name, to impacted communities, farm worker advocates, Native American tribes, and more. And to date, we have brought 115 cases against the Trump administration and counting. Uh, we are, you know, while I just said in, in Congress, you're not going to be able to pass big legislation and get it signed by the president, but we can stop the president and the courts. And that's what we do. Should be interesting watching exactly what does take place. Marty, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us on our program. Thank you very much. Marty is Earth Justice's Vice President of Policy and Legislation, and uh, we'll certainly be watching this situation. The organization is on the web at earthjustice, all is one word, dot O-R-G. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program. I'm Bob Salter, joined by Felicia Cornblue. Uh, Felicia is Associate Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. She's the author of The Battle for Welfare Rights, Politics, and Poverty in Modern America, which was from University of Pennsylvania Press. We're talking with her today specifically about ensuring poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. This is a publication that's been put together along with the co-author, Gwendolyn Mink. It's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. So many areas where I um, think we can go in discussion, but an obvious one to me, start us off, is that title. Was that the only title for this publication? That was the title we settled on because I think we would all like to believe that the the programs that we have, the government programs we have that uh, call themselves anti-poverty programs, mm-hmm. that they are reducing poverty, <laughs> that's, that that's what they're designed to do and that that's what they do. But what we've found is in the recent past, there's really no chance of that, but that, that almost by design, these programs are ensuring poverty. They're guaranteeing that we have poverty. They're not really um, even made to reduce poverty or eliminate poverty. So we wanted to call attention to that big irony uh, before we even said anything else in the book. Well, whatever happened to that time, it seems like it wasn't that long ago, though I know it was. Way back in 1996, when we heard this talk about welfare reform and, quote-unquote, ending welfare as we knew it. Well, I think, I think that was a very popular political slogan of the mm. period, right? What, what had happened was that welfare had become um, hugely controversial for complicated reasons and maybe also for, like, uncomplicated reasons of sexism and racism, and it was thought to be a program that was serving, you know, non-white women, um, although that wasn't really true either. Um, And then when Bill Clinton came into office, well, when he was running for president, what he found on the campaign trail was that of all of the political slogans that he threw out there, the most popular one was end welfare as we know it. And um, his campaign people even said later 
that they they developed a little acronym for it because it became like it was like you know you're going to give this speech in Altoona or whatever, and then you slow it you throw in the and welfare as we know it piece, and they would just <laughs> they would just you know uh, throw that in as almost uh, um, as almost a catchphrase, mm-hmm. and he never said exactly what he meant by that. But then when he came into office, he felt like he needed to actually do something that was consistent with that slogan. So he had his own kind of welfare reform policy, which I think that I think Clinton thought it wouldn't be so bad because he also thought that he was going to be able to dramatically change the health care system and that everybody would have some kind of terrific health care. Um, and then the Republicans took both houses of Congress in November 1994, I don't know if people remember, but that was the first time in two generations we had Republican and pretty conservative Republican majorities in both the House and the Senate. And then they wrote an even more conservative welfare reform policy, and they kind of dared Bill Clinton and said, okay, you know, you went on the campaign trail and said you were committed to ending welfare. Here's a policy that would let you do that. And they dared him to sign the bill. And ultimately, for political reasons, he did. And it was a major, major transformation to what had been a really signal democratic program and a democratic commitment that had been around since the 1930s. But at this point, here we are, it's 2018, and there seems to be this debate, division, however you want to phrase it, about the real direction of the Democratic Party uh, these days. And welfare reform is one of the areas which often comes up in discussion. Um, what have you found? What, do you, what can we really expect to see? Well, I think what started to happen in 2016 was really interesting um, there was a real debate during the Democratic primaries between a more mainstream wing of the Democratic Party and another wing, we could call it more progressive or whatever. Um, and it was in part because of Bernie Sanders' candidacy, but it was also because of other kinds of forces, the kinds of forces that I think um, also helped Sanders. So it was the Black Lives Matter movement and it was a rising feminist movement that I think was in part inspired by Hillary and by the prospect of having a woman president, but also wanted to go further, you know, wanted, it wanted to have a genuinely progressive feminist kind of politics. Um, so that debate started, and then it was sort of all brushed under the rug um, when the the challenge of Trump became so evident and when Trump was actually elected. Um, but I think that that's still there. And it's a conversation or a comeuppance, you could even say, in the Democratic Party that really needs to happen. And and it hasn't really happened yet. It hasn't fully happened yet. So, like, during the, the course of the 2016 elections, Hillary Clinton was forced to reexamine some of the very conservative policies of her husband's administration from the 1990s. Like, she was forced by the Black Lives Matter people in particular to say, yeah, we made mistakes, 
when we we had a, a quote unquote tough on crime policy, right? They created new categories of federal crime and they built new federal prisons. And she was forced to say, yeah, that was a mistake and we should have fought harder to make sure that there we you know that we weren't creating new racial inequities and that kind of thing in the criminal justice system. So I think what I would want and the the coalition of people that I've been part of for many years would would want is that uh, they that that the mainstream of the Democratic Party take the same kind of self-critical look at what they did in the 1990s around welfare reform and then that they start saying it's time for us to chart a new course, a new course that will be good for poor people, but really will be good for all American families and will help will help anybody who's doing really significant caregiving work for their kids or for their elderly parents or relatives or anybody, that they would be able to turn to some government help in times of need. You know, we haven't done it yet, but I think there's a real chance, at least among Democrats, among people who think of themselves as progressives, as among people who think of themselves as feminist or pro-family, I think there's a real opportunity for us to not just have that conversation, but maybe to maybe to start to develop some policies as well. One of the things that you point up out in the book, Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective, is how it is that welfare reform kind of provided a path or paved the way, I guess you could say, for what came to be known as the Tea Party being a mass movement. And to some extent, I guess, even the election of Donald Trump? Yeah, I think you don't ever want to just focus on one factor. There are a lot of factors that that other people have identified. But I think that the set of stereotypes from the 1990s that were, you know, that were originated um, by, let's say, conservatives in Congress and that were floated and endorsed by the Democrats in the White House um, and ultimately that became part of this legislation, this welfare reform legislation that Democrats never renounced. Mainstream Democrats never renounced it. They just said, oh, what a great success this welfare reform has been. I think what that did was that it locked in those stereotypes about poor people, about women, about black people or non-white people, and also about government itself, right? That, and if it, when you look at some of the research and and you look at people um, people who have who started voting for the Tea Party in recent years and who later voted for Donald Trump, and people are very very anti-government, um, but when you dig behind the people's initial reactions about about government in general, what you find is that people still identify government very much with with welfare, and that there are a set of stereotypes about welfare and people who receive welfare that kind of lie behind more general anti-government attitudes. And I think that that's been driving some of our conservative politics. And the Tea Party voters, there's a sociologist at Harvard who, who interviewed a lot of Tea Party voters, and the number one thing that they identified as was as, quote-unquote, workers. And there's an idea that, and of course, it's great to be a worker, but there's an idea that people have that somehow I am a worker and there's somebody else over there who's not a worker. 
and that what government does, you know, when you have a bad idea about government, a negative idea about government, that what government does is it takes money away from the worker and gives it to the non-worker. And I think somehow we have to counter that. You know, it's just a big myth. Um, And I think it's undercut people's faith in every part of government. You know, like researchers will start talking to somebody about environmental regulation and they're like, oh, I hate the hand of big government, you know, even though they maybe they're living in a part of the country that really could use some environmental regulation. And then you go a little further and people just spontaneously start talking about welfare. Like, I don't want government's bad because it's going to give money to some, you know, immoral mother who's raising her kids and eating bonbons all day. And, you know, it's a total fantasy. There is There's no such mother out there sitting around eating bonbons all day and, you know, getting rich on the government check. Um, But that, it's a very, very powerful myth. And I don't think we can run away from it. I think we really have to, you know, address it head on. And people who, people in my position as researchers have to be willing to really call it out as as nothing but a myth. And I think people in politics have to be willing to say, you know, that's a lie and we can do better as a society. What does the research show about the program that, for lack of a better term, was known as welfare in terms of the size of it and the number of people who are actually um, receiving aid? Well, it's a pretty small program. Um, That's one of the interesting things is that it's almost like a funhouse mirror effect that it's become... You know, it's become sort of identified with the whole government um, as though, you know, any any government purpose is essentially welfare. Um, but it's a tiny portion of, of government spending. Um, and and it's really a small, a small and um, diminishing number of people who receive this kind of aid over time. So, um, you know, since the 1990s, it's just gotten smaller and smaller. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting how, you know, how, how something can be so, can loom so large in our imagination, but actually be so small um, in terms of, you know, how much our taxes are paying for it or, or how many people are actually receiving the aid. The book's entitled Ensuring Poverty. Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective, Felicia Kornbluh, K-O-R-N-B-L-U-H is her last name. She's our guest this portion of our program on The Fan. Radio.com We're talking with Felicia Kornbluh on our program. She has spent over 25 years studying and doing advocacy work on social justice issues. You served on the Women's Committee of 100. What exactly was that body? So that was an organization that we stitched together from around the country. Uh, Researchers and professors and writers working together and We came together under the slogan, a war against poor women is a war against all women. So we all identified as feminists, and what we wanted to say was as feminists and as people who had been doing research in this area, that we understood that that the rhetoric and the policies that were being mobilized 
for quote-unquote welfare reform in the 1990s were going to be harmful, not just to the poorest women, but, but to all women. And I guess what we meant by that was a couple of things. One is if we start if we start trying to mess around with people's families and their romantic decisions and their sexual decisions, and that's a lot of what this welfare reform was about, it was about saying that women were, you know, having too many kids or having kids at the wrong time or, you know, that they were having kids out of wedlock and they should be getting married to guys, even if the guys were abusive or whatever, right, that that was actually a compromise of our reproductive rights, um, potentially, and that we didn't want you know, for the sake of all women, we didn't want to be messing with that that kind of politics and that kind of conversations. That could be very, very harmful if the government had that kind of intrusive attitude. And then also the understanding that many, many women are economically vulnerable at some point in their lives because they're raising kids or because they're caring for elders or caring for people who are disabled or sick or something, um, or because they get into a bad relationship, you know, with somebody who's abusive or violent, and they need to get out of there, and they may not have savings in their own name. Um, they may not even have a credit card in their own name. So, And that that's, a, that that's a typical thing that happens to many, many women or can happen to many, many women. So we wanted to make that claim. And on the basis of that, we went around and we we did as much public education as we could, and we lobbied Congress repeatedly. Um, around this welfare reform proposal in the middle 90s. And then over the years when that proposal was um, being considered for reauthorization and uh, when changes were being considered, we came back to Washington again and again and lobbied again. Um, and I'll just say one incident from that which was really interesting was I went and I, I did lobbying visits with Betty Friedan, the famous feminist writer whose book, The Feminine Mystique, was one of the things that set off the modern wave of feminism. And I never thought I would meet her, but she was somebody who really, she really believed that this was, this was an important issue, not just for this, you know, one relatively small group of people, but that it opened the door to a set of things that could be problematic for all women and for the cause of women's rights and women's dignity. One of the things that you mentioned, and it's near the start of uh, your book, is the claim that welfare reform effectively has shortened women's lives. What evidence is there to back that up? Well, there's good evidence, and it was only um, from a few states, but public health researchers did do research in several states, and they looked carefully at um, at the evidence from before the welfare reform and after, and it's a it's a really it's a shocking thing, you know, to think that um, a government policy is shortening people's lives by half a year. But if you think about it, it's not that surprising. You know, what's happening is that, especially for for people who, for whatever combination of reasons, don't make it into the labor market, if somebody so, so the welfare reform of 1996 says that nobody can get benefits for more than five years, right, over over their lifetime. And that's a federal maximum. There are individual states that, that make it much shorter than that. So there's a real harsh timeline. So if you take somebody who, let's say they've been in a domestic violence situation and they have kids who are not yet full, you know, full day, full time in school, 
they may need more than that five years or more than whatever their state's you know time limit is. And when they lose benefits, they're forced to make very, very harsh and difficult choices. You know, do I get food for my kids or do I get food for me? You know, do I get the medicine that I need for, I don't know, my diabetes or for my hypertension or uh, my antidepressants or whatever? Or do I forego that medication so that I have a little more money? Um, you know, do I, do I go to this office uh, where I can get some help? Um, or do I not go because I can't even afford the bus fare or the tank of gas in my car? Like, those are the kinds of decisions that people who are on the economic margins are really forced to make. And any one of those decisions could wind up shortening your life. You know, if you don't take the medicine, if you don't get any kind of um, adequate or nutritious diet, um, if you don't go to that health visit, you know, to that doctor because you can't afford the gas in your car or because the welfare rules say that you're not allowed to have a car and it's going to take three buses and you don't, you know, you don't have the time or the money to do that. Like any one of those things could result in a really serious incident. Um, and then I think even beyond that, we just see stress, 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 stress. Um, you know, you think you're stressed. I think I'm stressed. You know, people who are poor and who are trying to raise their kids and keep their kids safe and healthy, um, they are really stressed. So, you know, hypertension is through the roof and other typical health health responses when people are when people are under intense stress. We see that all the time with poor people and mental health too. Oh my God, people's you know people's anxiety and depression and all that stuff just goes through the roof when people are having to stitch together their economic lives and they don't know, you know, day to day, week to week, whether they're going to be able to make it work. So I think all those things are contributing to people just not living as long. This idea of ensuring poverty, can that actually be tied specifically to the changes that have taken place with the welfare system? Well, what what I want to call attention to and what the book calls attention to is that there was a time before 1996 where we we as a society and the United States government made a kind of baseline promise to people and we said and it was a it, it was a kind of insurance um we we said to people if you meet certain criteria right if you have the economic need and if you're raising kids and if you meet whatever other you know eligibility standards your state chooses to impose then we promise you that you are going to receive some help now, that help was never fantastic. It never was enough to, like, make people rich. It wasn't even really enough to cover all of their basic needs. But at least it was something, right? It was some level of assurance or insurance to people to say, if you're really in need, you know, and, the, and you meet the criteria, then there will be a kind of a lifeline, for you. What happened after 1996, the fundamental shift was that we stopped making that promise to people, right? So it's no longer a so-called entitlement. Um, there's no guarantee that even if you meet all the criteria, you know, even if you are poor, even if you are raising young children or doing other very significant caregiving work, um, even if you do all the things that your state government says you should do, um, there's no longer a promise that that assistance will be there. And so that's why we would say that we've gone from a system of, you know, at least providing a baseline 
assurance that there'll be something there to, in a sense, ensuring people's poverty. We create more more chances that people are going to fall through the cracks, right? We took what was a very minimal safety net in the old days, kind of an inadequate safety net, but at least a safety net, and we turned it much, much more into a kind of Swiss cheese. And people can fall through those holes all too easily. That's what we mean by ensuring poverty. What's your hope with this book? I hope that especially people who think of themselves as progressives or feminists or liberals or Democrats, that people will be willing to go back and say, you know, the Democratic Party took a wrong turn in the 1990s. And President Clinton and his his portion of the Democratic Party thought that they needed to be very conservative in order to survive. But they gave too much away. They gave too much away to conservatives and Democrats. And I would hope that people today would be able to look back on that and say they made a mistake and they went too far, Uh, especially they went too far in allowing these stereotypes of women and mothers and, and black people and poor people. And now we have an opportunity to rethink, right? And we can start rethinking by by rethinking our anti-poverty programs and making sure that those are anti-poverty programs that really are about reducing or eliminating poverty and that that's the purpose of the program and that they're designed to that end, which right now they're not, right? So I think that's where we start. If we're going to be a compassionate society, if we're going to be a society that says, you know, we really care about mothers and children, and we really care about the most vulnerable among us, that is the place where we have to start to rebuild. And then beyond that, I think we also need to think about all of our families and the relationship between the labor market and and families throughout our system. And I would hope that we would we would rethink there as well. You know, what about child care for everybody? What about opportunities to take a leave from work because you have a, an ill or elderly or disabled relative? You know, for all of us, we, you know, we have this family and medical leave program that nobody can afford to take because there's no money in it. So that's, that's what I would hope, is that this book could start a conversation. First, a conversation about the past. We could look back and say, you know, we made a mistake the Democratic Party made a mistake uh, in concert with the Republicans, um, and that then we could say that that would be a basis for starting something new. At the poverty end of the scale, there are things we can do, and then at the other end of the scale, thinking about all of us, all of our families, all citizens, there are also things we can do. When we look at the Trump administration and exactly what is happening now with talk about um, sometimes the term welfare reform or welfare change is thrown around. What do you think we can actually really expect to see, if anything? I don't know what the Trump administration is going to try and do in the next couple of years, but um, they have tried. Um, one thing we know that they have tried and that they're, they're continuing to push is what they call work requirements in the Medicaid program, and that's very, very worrisome. So, you know, Medicaid is the health insurance program for people who are disabled and people who are elderly and, you know, people who are below any kind of income cut off an awful lot of people who are um, living in nursing homes uh, get that paid for through Medicaid. 
and uh, and there are an awful lot of mothers and children who rely on Medicaid for their health insurance. And I think what happened there was the Republicans just picked up the playbook from the 1990s, and they said, look, we did so well with welfare reform and the supposed work requirements in, uh, in the welfare reform of the 1990s, and we got the Democrats to go along with it, so now we can do this same thing in Medicaid. And, um, and a couple of states are trying it out. You know, we know, based on the welfare reform um, case study, that what's going to happen is that when these so-called work requirements are imposed, you know, people aren't going to get genuine work opportunities. Uh, it's going to cause people to just not apply for Medicaid, not even try and get that assistance. And it's going to cause bad health out- outcomes, especially for children. Um, so, uh, so that's one thing that I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to keep trying to do. They seem to have backed off their other plan, which was to impose work requirements for people who get food stamps or the, the SNAP program, as it's called. Um, I think for now they've, um, they've backed off from that, but that's another kind of crazy idea, you know, uh, SNAP or food stamps, it's not a very generous program. It's only for food. Um, traditionally, it's been pretty uncontroversial in America that if, you know, if you need a little assistance to get food for your family, that that's something that we should allow you to get. But they're trying to make that into some kind of a welfare boogeyman, too, and to say that, you know, somehow there's, there's something wrong with people who are getting those SNAP benefits and they have to be forced to work. They won't work on their own, et cetera. So um, anyway, I'm looking for I'm, – I'm hoping that doesn't come back, but it might. Um, and then otherwise, I think they're just going to try and, and play welfare, welfare, welfare as much as they can. They're going to try and call, you know, the Medicare program, which is health care for for old people, older people who have more resources, they're going to try and call that welfare. They're going to try and call Social Security welfare. They're going to try and call our disability insurance program that we rely on if we get um, disabled through some kind of injury at work. They're going to try and call that a welfare program. They're going to play it, I think, as much as they can. And that's another reason why we have to both look back and look forward, because um, if the Democrats keep saying, as they have for 20 years, that welfare reform was a success, then the Republicans are going to just going to be like, well, you know, you said it was a success, so let's try it. Let's try the same kinds of strategies in every other program. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I think uh, people are going to have to call it up because I think the Republicans may well just try and pick up that playbook and apply it to every single social program. The book is entitled "Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform, and Feminist Perspective." Felicia Cornblue, our guest in this portion of our program. She's Assistant Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Vermont. Um, The book coming our way from University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you very much for being kind with your time and sharing some information with us on this topic and also on our program today. Thank you. Another guest is going to join us after our Top of the Hour update here on The Fan. In uh, this portion of our program, this is Bob Solter, and we're pleased to have a guest who is in studio with us. We always love when that happens. doesn't happen often enough on uh, this program or at this uh, station or at this hour, quite <laughs> frankly, on uh, Sundays. Um, Camille Raya is in studio with us. Uh, she has an interesting story to share because 
we're going to be talking about, let me give you an overall context and then we'll build into the story. It's a story of a New Jersey-based legal professional basically rebuilding her life. That's kind of a tease with this. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Oh, thank you, Bob. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and talk to you. There's a lot of different things I want to ask you. I want to get into talking about uh, your story, what you've been through, because it's, to say the least, quite the experience. But <sighs> yes. a couple things background-wise, because I always like to set background for folks listening to discussions that we have. I mentioned the fact you're have a legal background. Correct. How did you and why did you get into law? It, it sort of just happened. I always had an interest in science, mm -hmm. and actually I saw law as a possibility of maybe going into an area of environmental law initially because I had a passion for the environmental sciences. It evolved differently after that. I, I you know, Being having a, a, a Bachelor of Science in Biology and minor in Chem, I ended up first doing patent work and then ended up doing some high-level litigation, like uh, medical malpractice, asbestos litigation, things like that nature. So things just kind of evolve. Um, and I did a lot of trial work, and I found that fascinating, and I was very much interested in doing that in my early years, mostly because it frightened me. <laughs> and so that was something I wanted to tackle, to just bas basically to have such a handle on cases and then be able to present it to a jury and... I was grateful for that experience and having done quite a bit of that, especially with in the asbestos sector, mm -hmm. representing shipyard workers, most so down in Baltimore, I was down there for two summers back in the day of late 80s, early, early 90s. From that, I really developed a confidence level of being able to take the practice. I was working in firms, some prestigious firms at the time, and just step out on my own, which I did in 91. Was that a frightening move? Yes, but I was ready for it. I, I I was ready for it. I wanted to have that 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 autonomy. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have that. Um, it was still at a time that I saw a lot of the glass ceiling that still existed everywhere, and I figured mm -hmm. this was something that maybe I eventually can do and develop, and and something that I can maybe do part time, or if you know, ideally, I married somebody who was also an attorney and could assist, would be able to then continue with it, and me to step back into it. It was all just an evolutionary process. It wasn't, you sort of, you can't plan everything. So that's how it, so law came about as a result of that. I was always told that um, I spoke well and um, I thought well and that I'd be good at, at being an attorney. My father was very supportive and encouraging me to be a, an attorney. In fact, he's a physician, and though I was thinking of medical school, I think doctors want their kids to be lawyers and lawyers want their kids to be doctors, <laughs> and that's where I kind of fell in. So I sort of... Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll try law. <laughs> and I'm always curious about this with lawyers. How much of what you're doing in practicing law really almost turns into performance? When you're a litigator. Mm -hmm. um, right now I've been doing a lot of transactional work, so it's not so much that. It's more. It's a different, different mm -hmm. realm. But when you're a litigator, very much so. Mm. Very much so. It's really taking the facts that are there and then just trying to harnessing them and trying to present them in the best format that would serve your client. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's, um, it, it's part of, it's the way it is. And you have the opposing, the opposing side doing the same for their client. Okay. Now let's get into talking about 
this story because it's an incredible one. I mean, how are you today, first of all? Uh, I'm well, thank you. It, it's been a process, but I am, I am actually, as a result of all the trauma that we've experienced, I feel actually more empowered and stronger as a result of it all. Mm. Pained, but actually I tapped into some strength and resources within myself that I didn't even realize I had until I was faced with circumstances that required me to tap into it. So I'm grateful that I know that part about myself that I did not know before. Okay. Now, to take us through the story, uh, as you mentioned, your uh, ex-husband was um, an attorney as well. Correct. All right. How did the two of you meet, first of all? Uh, we were both very active in a, a local legal organization, mm-hmm. um, and um, we met there. And with his firm, the firm that he was involved in, what exactly was going on that caused this basic downfall here? Well, he joined my practice in 96, five years after I had started the practice, the year we got married. Um, and then... Um, very intelligent man, and and I, I still say a good man, but something clearly went wrong, because he's not, he's not he, he's not a greedy person. Mm-hmm. He just, but he did some poor judgments. I can't explain what happened exactly. But the year after we got married, I had my first child, and then um, after my second child, then moving to New Jersey. At the very end of 99, he basically continued the practice on his own and developed the practice and grew it. It was initially a general practice with uh, one section being elder law, and he focused primarily on elder law and became well-respected in that field to the point where he was actually speaking at seminars and, from what I understand, doing quite well and had it together. Um, I think just the pressures of, you know, I had my third child in the spring of 9-11, not five months before 9-11, and the practice was in New York City at the time. We had moved to Bergen County, mm-hmm. initially living in Bay Ridge, but had moved to Bergen County by that point. And with the loss of the building, because it was closed as a result of what had happened, it was down in that area, and with the onset of uh, litigation concerning asbestos issues later on, he found himself what was to be temporarily relocated into the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. Well, you didn't want to be anywhere in this area where we yeah, are now. Yeah, you couldn't th- be, but time, the commute was just, right. you know, right. it wasn't no longer taking the train in anymore, and it was just a, from Bergen County, it was hard. And three little kids at home, and whoever knows, eventually he had just ended up taking certain funds from client accounts, and guardianship accounts that wasn't proper, mm-hmm. was wrong. And um, I can't explain what went wrong there. And when I do ask him those questions, he just tells me, um, you can't make something rational that's irrational. He acknowledges it was wrong. He doesn't. Something broke, because this is this was a, this is a good man. This just did some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. However, the trust and all that, and the pain and the aftermath was just too devastating for the marriage to survive. So, how did you find out? The day is emblazoned in my head. Mm-hmm. July first, two thousand and eight. Um, the children were home from school. My youngest had just finished full day first grade seven eight and ten year old children sleeping in their beds i get a door the door rings very early in the morning um and i look out the window and i see a whole number of police cars with their lights twirling and it just didn't make sense that's not a good sign oh my goodness i i, I but i wasn't making sense it mm-hmm. just was because this is not yeah you know, it, it, 
they're at the wrong place. What's going on? Is there mm. some emergency? Something going on the block? Is there a, a, another <laughs> attack? Mm. We're being warned, but I, I didn't know mm. what. In fact, I, you know, I opened the door. I even said, "You have the wrong house," and they said, "No, we have the right house." And and at that point, I still thought my husband was flabbergasted, not knowing what was going on. This is what I was assuming. I mean, because this is a man who was always such a straight shooter. I mean, he would be upset if I put the recycling in the wrong compartment. And so I never, ever, and always had a presence of calm, you know, that you can rely on him. So he did not show the meltdown he was having inside. So mm. this apparently, unfortunately, was going on for some years that he had taken improperly. And the poor man needed intervention, but because of his such a calm demeanor on the outside, he didn't get it, you know, and, and, and he was a likable guy. And so he got passes and he needed help. But mm. any event, so I had these, all these police officers coming into my home. And, and at that point, I was still, from what I learned later, part of the investigation because my name was not only on the firm um it was also on certain matters of which i was appointed guardian on back in the 90s when i had practiced that he had continued to manage mm. and so i understood later but at the time i didn't why i'd be part of the investigation because my name is mixed up in there until they do their investigation and realize it had nothing to do with me so it was scary they from what i understand they had issued search warrants at the same time at uh, the Brooklyn office that he had and then at my home. And they required me to sit downstairs on the first floor and wouldn't let me go to my children who were sleeping in the beds. That was very, very troubling because I was so scared of my babies. You know, this is mm -hmm. not what... This is this is a B-movie I'm living. This is not my world. What, I, I was in shock. And that feeling lasted a long time. Mm -hmm. um, they were there for good number of hours I'm so grateful my kids slept through that and they left the house with boxes of different papers and computers I mean even papers that had to do with my my children's schoolwork that were mixed up with my papers that I was very active with the with with the school and I was I think it was a great parent at the time and was so there was a lot of things I did with the school they just just left with a lot of stuff mm -hmm. And uh, I was still couldn't make sense. What I'm thinking, this is a mistake. Did somebody file a complaint? I didn't. And it, it wasn't until um, after they left that I was able to speak to my husband. And I looked at him and I asked, do you know what's going on? And all he said at that time was, I advanced myself on commissions. And that alone just threw me for a loop. I was, And I, I understood that as being commissions, commissions that a number that he's entitled to take, but that he would take early before the subsequent court order. Usually you, you have a number you can figure out is based on a, on a formula, gets approved by a court examiner, and then it might take some time for an order to be issued. Right. So I'm thinking, okay, this was money that he would have been entitled to take, but it was still wrong to take it early. To me, that's as an attorney, that's awful, and that's awful enough in of itself. Mm -hmm. And he said they wanted to go down and speak to them. And I'm saying, yes, go for it. You know, I'm thinking, go explain. I'm just, this is before I, I learned after the fact that it was actually over time he had taken more than what he was entitled to. And that was really mm. why, when he had so much work there to get done, yet he, for whatever reason, couldn't get it out. I mean, he had a breakdown. He clearly did. And I feel for him, but the aftermath was just so painful and so 
devastating. We're talking with Camille Raya on this portion of our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. It's the Sports Edge with Rick Wolf that follows our 8 o'clock update. Football Sunday time with Malusis and Deal after our 9 o'clock update. And, of course, NFL previews at 7.30 this Sunday morning. Radio.com. We're talking with uh, Camille Raya on our program, and um, she's sharing an awful lot with us, and talking about her story and also the road back uh, from this uh, traumatic experience that she and her family have been through. Um, keeping your, for lack of a better term, mental stability mm-hmm. during all of this, mm-hmm. what was that like? To say I was upset is an understatement. <laughs> I would think so, yes. <laughs> so I, I think no matter how normal and grounded you are, one would be upset and and, and, and be allowed that. Um, but I am grateful, as I said before, what I've learned about myself, that I'm just not made to break. I mean, if you had told me before this all happened that this would happen, I would have been, oh, my God, I can't deal with this. No. But you don't really know what strength you have until you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I dealt with it because I just... I didn't just pack up and run away and mostly because I wanted to keep that stability and not have my kids feel like that they have to hide or run away from the community to keep their heads up high and I just was I felt like the phoenix bird you know just kind of opening my wings and hovering over my children protecting them from the fire as I fought through with tears and and, and anxiousness and it's not that I didn't break down and cry but I didn't break down my logical thinking my rational thought never broke down that was always intact i always kept my eye forward though it was difficult sometimes to push through because of the emotions but i kept going and um and from the fire then just kind of evolved but it it was traumatic and painful for for all of us and particularly the children My, my my daughter when this all happened in, in the summer of 2008, she had just graduated elementary school. She was just about to start middle school, which is a very hard time under normal circumstances for girls. And so to have all that chatter and talk about the dad and you know, yes. and, the, and the self-esteem of children is based on what their parents mm-hmm. are about. So I needed to give that to my children. I needed to model, you know, okay, dad's not a bad person, but he did a bad thing. And, you know, and it's not all about, you know, you've got also me and I'm going to model for you guys strength, endurance, resilience that you can be proud of and you can take that internalize and grow with that. And and I that was my my incentive, my motivation, at least part of it. Final question for you because you've been very kind with your time. This is a natural one and to some extent I think you've answered this but I'm going to ask it anyway because some of the people listening to us may be wondering. A situation like what you went through given the right circumstances, could this happen to anybody? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, when you, you know, I, I'm, yeah, how, you, you just, if you, you, if you, you're working with other people or you're, you're, you have trust in other people and you believe what's said and you rely on that, of course it could happen. It doesn't make you stupid. It doesn't make you, uh, you know, uh, dishonest. Mm-hmm. 
it's just that it makes you vulnerable that the people you rely on can do something that could be very damaging to you personally. So, yes, I mean, of course, it could happen to anybody. And particularly when there is that extra trust, particularly in a marriage, or even when you're just friends, you certain give, uh, you know, a certain deference as to what that person is doing. Um, it's so important knowing that um, to be guarded uh, and, and not to not to be where you can't have that trust, but only to an extent. Not to be so foolishly, openly trust. Not not to be like a child mm-hmm. and so trusting. And 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 that's what I learned from this and and, and um, I I guess maybe having grown in a, in, a, in a more privileged way at the time you know and my my mother had a doctorate in French came over here after marrying my dad from Italy and basically my father took over everything this is kind of the I had grown with that to be able to or or, or that was basically my my lack of growth was just not having to ever been exposed to any sort of trauma like that or the different psyche of people. I was very naive and, and it's important not to be. It, it's important to, to, to love people, trust people, but realize people have issues and you, you don't just take them for, for their face value. And, and it, it took having this experience to, to learn that. So I needed to learn that. And, and, um, and I regret very much what had happened. Camille, thank you very much for your time and also for sharing your words with us um, today because your words are very powerful. The story is one that can definitely provide a lesson for a lot of the people listening to us as well. And we wish you continued success on your journey back. I am so grateful, Bob, that you took an interest in having giving me this opportunity to talk and I'm very, very grateful and appreciative of that. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on our program this Sunday morning. You know what program's coming up next. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge, and Melusis and Deal are by with the Football Sunday Show after 9 this Sunday morning. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.